in the beginning of the book, I explained that the heroine, through her blog, art, uh, she has blog posts that she kind of reviews Bollywood movies, that she focuses on the 90s, which is considered the modern golden age of Bollywood film. And I feel like anything past that, you start getting into these really problematic nationalist <laughs> films um, that perpetuate a political message. Hey everyone, welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Today we are going to be talking to Nisha Sharma. In 2018, Nisha released her first book, a novel called My So-Called Bollywood Life, to great acclaim. Nisha excellently draws upon traditional Bollywood themes to tell you the story of Indian-American teen Vinnie Mehta as she deals with heartbreak and new love and her passion for film. Nisha recently released the first book of her new series, The Sing Trilogy. She's an active blogger. She has a full-time job. And she recently won the Rita Award for the Best Young Adult Romance. Nisha, I'm so excited to have you here with us today. So let's jump right in. Um, you were a pre-med student at college. Then you ended up going to law school. And now you are a published author mm -hmm. with two books. Right. Yes. Have you always been a writer and who in your family was most encouraging of your passion? Yes, I've had a <laughs> I've had a couple changes in my career. First of all, you know, I'm I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I uh, I did pre-med for a year. My father is this multi-generation physician. We we go back multiple years uh, for doctors in our family. Um, so, of course, pre-med was the natural choice. And, you know, throughout the whole process, though, I was always a writer. I uh, used to publish short stories when I was in high school, and uh, I wrote fan fiction a lot when I was younger. And then when I I got into college and I switched out of pre-med, I ended up aggressively pursuing my passion for writing. Um, so I tell people that I became a career writer at that point, even though I was going through school and I ended up, you know, going through law school and uh, working in corporate after that. But I, I've always written and that drive to be a published writer never changed. And as a kid and as a young adult, were you always embracing of your South Asian heritage? Did that relationship take time to evolve? I have to say that I grew up with incredibly supportive. I guess that's the second part of your first question. Um, I grew up with very uh, supportive parents. I grew up with very supportive extended family. And although they always used to say, you know, choose a career that will make you money and then pursue your passion until your passion also makes you as much money um, because they approach it from a very realistic, you know, you know, culturally influenced mindset. Um, but, you know, they never um, discouraged me from writing. And because of the way that I was raised with, you know, always knowing that, you know, every single part of myself was completely accepted by the people that I love and that love me. You know, I never questioned my identity. And um, and I have to say, I'm, I'm probably one of the few that's been fortunate enough to always think, like, it's completely normal to bring chutney cucumber sandwiches to lunch <laughs> in high school. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's 
that I have to say I've been incredibly blessed to just never have that issue. You know, it's so interesting because I was on your blog. I was reading through some of your um, blog articles and, and you talk about your mom's recipes, which mm-hmm. we will talk about uh, in a little bit. But you talk about like chutney on toast and then yeah. keema. And it just reminded me of, you know, when I was growing up. And chutney is one of those things which you can just put on anything right yeah yeah and it tastes just it tastes delicious Nisha moving on you talk about on your website how you manage your day job and your writing Mm -hmm. what is your day job (laughs) (laughs) um so uh after law school I worked in government contracts and I ended up moving into diversity and inclusion so my day job is pretty much you know the same as what my personal passion is, um, making sure that people of color and underrepresented groups um, have a voice mm. and um, have their whole identities accepted and, and included in this world. So let's talk about your book. Sure. Uh, my so-called Bollywood life. Mm-hmm. How did you think of the idea for my so-called Bollywood life? And when did inspiration really strike? Um, so I wrote my so-called Bollywood life as part of my MFA thesis. So after law school, oh. yeah, so I so after law school, I decided to go back to school because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, if I could be a career student, I would prefer to be a career student because I, you know, I loved school. I had to write a novel for my MFA, which I was getting part-time while I was working. And the MFA uh, kind of, you know, gave you the structure like, OK, you have to write a book and, you know, it, it has to have these components and approach it like you would approach a thesis paper. So that's mm-hmm. how I approached my novel. I approached it like a thesis paper. So I wanted to accomplish a few specific things when I wrote this book. The first was I wanted to write a novel, which I personally hadn't seen on the shelves, about a heroine who was completely comfortable with her identity, similar to the way that I grew up, because I felt like there wasn't enough of that representation on the shelves. The second is I wanted to write a book where the heroine had a very positive relationship with her parents, similar to the way that I had a positive relationship with mine, because a lot of the times when you read South Asian fiction, the parents represent tradition and the hero and heroine represent a modern change of culture. And they're always at odds. But I wanted to make sure that, you know, there are stories out there that they don't have to be at odds. They can move and change and evolve together. And the third thing is that, you know, there's so many there's a lot of uh different takes on what bollywood means what bollywood is and it's kind of become this this word that is used i think it, for south asians in general it's a catch-all phrase and the the true meaning and the true definition is lost and how it's a, the hindi language film industry in india and um it has affected generations and generations of people in the way that we you know view film and entertainment So I wanted to really explore something like that. And um, my so-called Bollywood life came out of those three principles and really developed into what I like to tell people as the love letter to my younger self, because it has these three things that I valued so much growing up. And on top of that, it's about a heroine who's so sure and so confident in what she wants to do. And that's how I always wished I was. But, you know, I, I was a normal teenager and, you know, we all go through growing pains. So um, that is, that's kind of how the book evolved. Talking about Bollywood, how did you tackle some of the issues that uh, 
Bollywood film industry faces, like mm-hmm. some of the problematic aspects of Bollywood, like sure. sexism and objectification of women right. and lack of representation of wider India, broader India. I just see like specific regions of India that are more represented sure. in Bollywood. And even when we look at social class, mm-hmm. um, there, there's a certain social class that it appeals to. So how did sure. you address that? Um, So because the book is a young adult novel, a lot of the personal opinions and perspectives that the heroine has Mm. are very rose-tinted glasses. But she does reference specific things in Bollywood that she doesn't agree with and she feels, you know, need to be addressed or, you know, that people shouldn't live their lives believing. And, you know they're they're part of Bollywood and she accepts it but she doesn't agree with it so like item numbers are something mm-hmm. that she doesn't like because it's objectifies women and mm-hmm. you know why are we still having item numbers that's the question you know I don't understand why there's you know still like the most of the time they don't even have purpose anymore they evolved from like pieces in movies where you know they were they built the element of suspense between the hero and heroine during the item number to now literally just object defying the woman. So that's what that's one. And then, you know, the other thing is in the beginning of the book, I explained that the heroine through her blog art, uh, she has blog posts that she kind of reviews Bollywood movies that she focuses on the 90s, which is considered the modern golden age of Bollywood film. And I feel like anything past that, you start getting into these really problematic nationalist Mm -hmm. films um, that perpetuate a political message. And, you know, not to say that there's zero good films after, like, 2000. There are tons of, you know, really good movies that talk about class and representation and um, sexism and but again, they're few and far between yeah. versus like the the overall body of the movies that have come out. Um, so the 90s kind of, you know, was, you know, where you have the group dances and it's like really the rose tinted glasses would make sense. You know, having a character who has rose tinted glasses would make sense if she likes those particular movies in that area. Even early 2000s, I, I remember movie V Zara. Yeah, uh, it was like cross-border, you know, focusing on peace, promoting uh, that uh, message. And now, as you mentioned, movies have become a lot more nationalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, We see this, like, misplaced nationalistic fervor. Um, Why do you think, Nisha, that is the case now versus, like, 10 years ago? So it could be the chicken before the egg, you know, where it could be that film is perpetuating a message that's affecting society or it could be society that's mm. creating this message and then it's affecting the films that are representing the times. So um, I think because of the political turmoil that's currently happening in India, mm. um, a lot of the films are trying to create a, a, a and I put it in air quotes, a... Um, a real view of like what some of the issues are, but they're not They're mm. They are completely slanted with a political message based on honestly, who's probably whoever is probably funding, funding the film. Mm. Um, and um, whether it's aggravating the political situation, um, I'm not sure because, you know, here in the U S we get, I think we get a very, 
a filtered message of what's really happening over mm-hmm. there. And when I talk to family members over there, they also feel like, you know, there's just this tension. And I think, you know, you hear you feel that tension a little bit in the movies that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, so which honestly, every Bollywood fan that I've talked to recently, you know, whenever we have like a discussion, even some of the scholars that I had consulted who are now friends of mine um, who study Bollywood film as, you know, an actual, you know, through through universities and, you know, where they teach film, they all say the same thing. You know, the film industry has now become a almost like a media outlet where it's just producing a message. Yeah. You know, and hopefully, hopefully it'll go back to being an entertainment, you know, like it'll be focused on entertainment while also, you know, creating positive real stories that we can all connect with in a way that like uh, doesn't focus so much on politics but on social issues of the people you know and I grew up in Pakistan and I have mm-hmm. like I grew up with Bollywood movies and I cannot relate to them anymore and yeah. it's it's sad it just saddens me because every time I go through the list of new releases I'm like what should I watch I know right because it's yeah. like if you know my religion is being vilified in almost every Bollywood movie, yeah. then I just don't want to watch that. Right. Um, what has been response uh, from readers of your book? I think I've been so fortunate to have readers who really either have never heard of Bollywood before come to huh. me and say, you know, I've never been introduced to the film industry. Where should I start? And I always tell them to start with the 90s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, um, that, you know, they they feel like they've been opened up to a new to a new culture in a positive way where they feel like uh, they aren't being um uh, fed something that's been filtered through, you know, a lot of different like interpretations. They feel like, okay, this is real. This is, this is something that you know, like is is from an own voice's author. Mm. Um, so I've had that, and I think the most rewarding ones are the readers who have come to me who are South Asian and who have been brought brought up in in the U.S. and who say that you know what, I felt like I haven't found a book that focuses on the positive upbringing that South Asians can, you know, experience in the U.S. And I feel like I found it in your book. So so I've been super fortunate and and really humbled by the experience of, you know, talking to readers who have, you know, come from either end, whether they've known Bollywood or, you know, their entire lives or have never experienced it before. Um, Nisha, I should have asked this question in the beginning, but you were born and raised in the U.S., right? I was, yeah. How integral was Bollywood uh, part of your, you know, childhood or growing up? Because I can understand, like, in Pakistan or even in India, it's different, right? Sure. You're exposed to these movies a lot more. Sure. Uh, but since you grew up here, how integral was that? Not just your, but, you know, your friends, uh, South sure. Asian friends and others. My mom actually came over from... India first, my mom's family. Mm. Um, she came over when she was about 13. Oh. And she moved to Queens, New York. And in Queens, they found a very robust community of South Asians. And uh, their culture and identity and everything was so preserved. Mm. So um, so when she went back, to, she would go back to India, it felt like there was no lapse in, you know, in upbringing. Like she felt like, you know, she, her and her cousins could communicate the same as if she had been brought up and raised in India. Um, But then 
I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. And so, uh, funny enough, my culture was still, I felt like, preserved in the small Indian community we had found oh. um, it, uh, in Northeast PA, just a, a few hundred families. But um, my parents used to speak to us in Hindi. I ate Indian food every night, like, <laughs> um, you know, for dinner. And we'd have Bollywood movies playing all the time on weekends. Uh, we would celebrate American holidays and then they would become this, you know, indie-fied, like, holiday experience. So every Thanksgiving, to date, I swear to God, this still happens. After dinner, everyone's like, well, what should we watch? Let's watch a movie. What should we watch? And my uncle and my mother will always say, Cholet, let's watch Cholet. <laughs> so, like, for, like, 30 years or something, we've been watching Cholet <laughs> after Thanksgiving dinner. So, you know, it, and I think also the other thing is I was trained as a Kathak dancer. Oh. So I learned Kathak classical Indian dance since I was seven. So from seven to, I think, like when I was in college, um, you know, it was that that experience of training um, where you'd have you have to understand the myths and the um, the history behind Kathak like that. Also, I was constantly studying it and exposed to it and then watching old Bollywood films where they actually used to have cut the classical pieces in the huh. movies. Um, you know, I think that also helped preserve. I feel like preserve is the wrong word to use, but it also helped shape a lot of my um, my South Asian experience growing up. So Bollywood Life recently won an award, the Rita Award for Best Young Adult Romance. What does this award mean to you and what is the significance of you having won it? Um, so uh, the Rita Award is considered the gold standard award for romance fiction. And it is something that ever since I joined RWA, I was 19 when I joined because that's when I wanted to be a career writer. So, of course, you join the one organization that connects you with other mm. romance writers. Ever since I was 19, I knew that I wanted to win a Rita. And it's, you know, a wonderful experience to not only be have your book celebrated uh, in the genre, but it also opens you up to opportunities because it kind of validates the you as a professional writer in a lot of ways. There's there's many things that validate you as a writer. And, uh, you know, a lot of it has to be self-validation, which, you know, of course, is is something that a lot of writers struggle with, such as myself. But um, this is like one of those milestones that I've always had in, you know, in the back of my mind as as something that is part of, you know, my validation. And so when I won it, first of all, I couldn't stop crying because like, they announced <laughs> my name. And I'm like, I was just a mess. And I was like, I'm not going to cry. There's no way. I'm not a crier. There's no way. And I just, I like lost it. And I think it's because that moment was such a huge, it was, it was such, it was so huge for me and also for the romance writing community because I was the first South Asian to ever win mm. a Rita Award. And there are so many South Asian writers who had come before me who had been nominated but had never reached that step. So I felt like I was getting something that honestly the first should have gone to, you know, Nalini Singh or to Sonali Dev, who are both amazing writers who have been nominated in the past. And then, you know, I was just so humbled by the experience of like, okay, like, my so-called Bollywood life resonated with readers to the point where, like, I was able to, I was able to be honored with this award for it. So, so I have to say that it was, it was definitely a moment. I think for like 
two weeks afterwards, my husband and I were celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the um, Sing Trilogy. Sure. What is that book all about and how do you compare sure. it to my so-called Bollywood life? So my so-called Bollywood life is young adult, but the Sing Trilogy is a contemporary romance and it's considered a legal thriller. <laughs> and um, the reason why I wanted to write it is because I've always thought of myself as an adult romance writer. Mm. I never really thought I would write a young adult book, but, you know, through the MFA process, it felt like the right story to tell for, you know, a high school student. But the Sing Trilogy incorporates a lot of my adult a, a lot of my experiences as in corporate America, as, hmm. you know, in my 20s, um, I worked very closely with C-level executives. I worked very closely with, you know, presidents of organizations. And you see a lot of the decisions that go on behind the scenes hmm. that you would never experience, I think, if you were like a couple levels below. So um, I've always been fortunate enough to work at, you know, so closely with executive leadership. And... I also love the the trope, the billionaire trope. So, you know, there's tons of tropes in romance and it's like secret baby, there's billionaires, there's like, you know, like the the duke and the duchess and, you know. So, but I've always loved the billionaire trope and I thought to myself at one point, like, okay, you know, I want to write an adult romance. What kind of story do I want to tackle first? And I I thought to myself, you know, I love the billionaire trope. And there are so many South Asian billionaires. Why is there no South Asian billionaire romance? Yeah, so that's true. So that, that was kind of, you know, where my thought process had gone. And I was like, you know, the, the story, the, the takeover effect is the first in a trilogy about three brothers who are trying to preserve the immigrant dream for their father who had, be, had become a tech billionaire yeah. um, because he was brilliant at, his, at code and he came over, he started a company, he registered patents and those patents became mega money-making machines. And he raised three, three Punjabi sons and all of them are, you know, very strong-willed, like alpha male Punjabi, like, you know, <laughs> sodars that you like think of, right? And the premise of the story is there is this company that is now trying to take over the the father's oh. organization. And the three sons are doing everything they can everything they can to protect their father's immigrant dream. Nisha, what so. what are some of the differences between writing young adult and adult romance? What did you experience when you were writing um, this one versus the other one? So young adult romance um, and adult romance, honestly, the, the process is pretty much the same. I feel mm -hmm. like uh, both are incredibly difficult to sit down and tell a story that uh, adheres to, you know, the character's voice and the conflict that's true to, like, you know, the, the character you're creating. Um, so the process is very similar. The difference I have to say that I experienced is for the YA, it, because it was so close to to the way I grew up and, mm. you know, my love for Bollywood, the level of research was just kind of revisiting experiences that I had in my childhood, like watching all these movies again. With adult romance, um, as much as, you know, I understand corporate contracts, I actually had to do a significant amount of research. Um, so I I have, of course, you know, with the company that I work for, like I have access to the, the legal team that handles mergers and acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So I actually sat with, you know, like peers at my organization and I was – 
you know, I'm in a different department and, you know, I, I was like, can I buy you coffee? And I ended up picking a lot of their brains and just, you know, and of course researching like how the super wealthy live, <laughs> which is something that, you know, it's amazing. It kind of like blew my mind how like what what wealthy people do. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do a lot of that research as well. So And you also write a blog and uh, one of your blog series is sharing your mom's recipes. Yeah. And I love that. I was looking at that. Um what is your favorite recipe and why did you start that? Um so I'll I'll answer the second part of the yeah. question first. So my second young adult novel which comes out in 2021, so huh. it's a few years from now. It is about a heroine who uh, is a Gatak dancer um, who tries to connect with her father through cooking because he owns a restaurant in Chicago and her parents just got divorced and she moves to New Jersey and um, she wants to maintain the relationship with him. And the only real language they have that's shared is food. Mm -hmm. So she starts cooking these recipes that were passed down through his family to try to connect with him. And I ended up thinking about it in terms of my own relationship with food and my parents and and the recipes that have been passed down and how cooking really, you know, is um, is like there's no measurements in South Asian cooking, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's no there's no recipe there's no measurements and like so my mom can't write them down. Like it's kind of sitting across the the kitchen counter from her and watching her do it and finding out like okay like you know this is when you taste this is how much you salt like she puts in by just you know like like taking out her silver tin and like just scooping up like a couple like teaspoons of salt. Um so it's really just it was the whole process of just learning about cooking for that book was personal for me. And a lot of the uh, and through the process of writing it and, and you know, learning cooking through revisiting that, you know, food connection with my parents as an adult, I was like, you know, I have to I have to share some of these experiences. Like I know that, you know, there's no measurements with the way that I grew up, you know, watching my mom cooking, but like I have to I have to figure out a way to measure it out. <laughs> and so that's how I started it to kind of create this log of these recipes that I've loved and like some of the changes that I've made, you know, as an adult now. Um, so so that's how it started. And and I totally forgot the first part of your question. Uh, <laughs> what is your favorite recipe? Oh, my first my favorite recipe is my mom's basic pistachio malai kulfi. It's super easy. It's actually an easy recipe, but I remember her, like, ever since I, you know, I was a child, in the summer when we'd be at home, after, like, you know, and school was out, um, we'd be outside playing or whatever, and we'd come in, and she'd, like, <laughs> freeze these little kulfi, like, in little kulfi popsicle containers for us, and growing up like there was a period of time like in college and you know in law school where I didn't really I wasn't really cooking a lot but you know now that I'm settled I like I remember calling her up like a couple of years ago and saying I miss your malai kulfi like every once in a while we'll go home and she'll have it in the summer but you know I want to make it and she was kind of like okay well come <laughs> over you know she, she wouldn't talk to me on the phone about it so I came over and since then, I have to say mine is now a little bit better than hers, but, you know, I can't really tell her that to her face. <laughs> so do you cook regularly? Is that something that you do as well? Yeah, we. I mean, because of our busy schedules, me and my husband, we, we tend to 
um, really spend time together and connect the most over dinner. So mm. after we work all day. And so we've tried to make that something that we share together. So the process of like making food and sitting together and talking throughout it, like when we were kids and how we would connect with our parents through food. So we try to do that now together. So let's talk about your husband. You got married in 2019. So you have your own uh, romance story. How did you guys meet? Um, So we are the product of the modern day arranged marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are both of our parents had put uh, our profiles up on Shadi.com. Um, and they had, you know, paid for our subscriptions for us. <laughs> and um, one, and he was a little bit better about it um, and, you know, checked it himself. My mother would check it for me because I refused to look at it. Um, and uh, not to say that I wasn't – I was against it, but I just felt like I was – I, I didn't have as much faith in Shavi.com, I think, as Anil had. Um, so Anil, he uh, he would check his profile. He saw my profile. He sent me a message. And then, you know, two months later, we met. Three months after that, our parents met, you know, and then we got married. Uh, we actually eloped first. Huh. Why? So we eloped last year because we knew that if we were going to have a wedding, it was going to be a South Asian Punjabi wedding and we wanted something and we're very we're very simple people I think in terms of like the way that we celebrate with friends and family so we just texted our siblings and our best friends and we said meet in Central Park at this time on this date (laughs) and we went to Macy's and I got myself like a a short cocktail dress and he got himself a suit and (laughs) we showed up we we had a ceremony in Central Park last year and uh, then we went out for tacos. And then um, the next day we told our parents what we did. And they said, you've made all your decisions. Now it's time for us to make ours. <laughs> and so that led to a Punjabi wedding in Udaipur oh in January <laughs> over the course of four days. <laughs> you know, but that's what I really like about South Asian weddings. It's mm-hmm. the same in Pakistan. You'll have like four or five events. You have music, yeah. yep. your family coming together, food. It was a lot of it's fun. so much fun. Yeah. So, Nisha, your husband is from South India yep. and you're from North India. And yep. people who don't know... India that well may not realize that different regions in India vary significantly in terms of cultures and traditions. Right. How do you guys reconcile both your cultures at home? Um, so being, I think, being, I, I grew up on the East Coast and um, because my mom was, had been here since 13, you know, she knew all of the South Asian spots, basically. Like, yeah. this is where we shop. This is where we eat. This is, where, you know, like, this is... she. Her and her family had kind of acclimated to finding the pockets of culture where they needed it. And um, so I grew up eating dosa. I grew up eating, you know, like, Italy. And, you know, I grew up with an awareness of South, uh, South Indian culture. Um, so his family um, settled all the way on the West Coast in an area where there was no like zero like access uh to north indians to (laughs) to pretty much like they were pretty isolated so uh, so they would get their cultural influence when they went back to kerala 
which is, you know, which is great for for them to, you know, access that stuff, which is, you know, fabulous. But when Anil and I met, it was it was a learning experience for him. And uh, it was a lot of fun, too, because, you know, I thought I understood South Asian or South Indian like food and culture. And then like I got the authentic experience when I started eating his mom's cooking, which, by the way, she's amazing. Like her and my mother, they need to open up a restaurant together. They're so good. But um, like South Indian cooking is very spicy. <laughs> and like when you go to Dosa Hut, like they don't make Sambar as spicy as really? like my mother-in-law. No. So it was um, it, like the first time I think I ate like like her food, I, I felt my mouth was going to burn off, but it was so good. It was like, it was the, you know, the Indian food that's so spicy that you just keep going, even though like... Yeah, because I thought like North Indian food, which is similar to Pakistani food, like in, especially in Punjab, right? I thought that's very spicy too. Not like South Indian oh food. God, oh my really? gosh. I thought I had it, I thought I had it under control, but no. Like when, you, <laughs> when you start eating like spicy South Indian food, it is a whole other experience. So talking about dosa have you tried this dosa cart that's in wash park i've heard so many good things about it i have not it's like there's this, this guy his name is tiru kumar okay. and apparently he has this cart or like dosa cart in wash park and he's oh, extremely famous i i'm i'm planning to go one day and have his I food have and maybe go. interview him as well yeah. but you should try that oh no definitely i i feel like um, what I've been doing is I've been hitting all the Baranta places. <laughs> so, like, I've hit, like, the Baranta food cart that's all the way up near Penn Station. Oh, there's I've, a Baranta food cart? Yeah, card? there's a Baranta food cart as well. And then <laughs> there's a Baranta alley in Jersey City, really? which is amazing. Oh, my and God. Then, I'm obsessed with barachas. Yeah. I should go and try that. Yeah. No, it's it's so good. So, And then we've also been trying the fusion food that's been cropping up in New York. Yeah. Um, so, like, the Indian Gastropub, which, honestly, it's like you can't go there expecting Indian food. Like, you have to go there expecting fusion food, so. And especially when people like you and I, who've grown up with uh, South Asian food, yeah. when we go out and try it, for us, it's like, it has to be really good for, for right. it to satisfy us, I guess. Right. Um, so, Nisha, where can people find your book? Is it books like, are they on Amazon or like, where, where can they find yeah, that? Yeah, everywhere. So they're on Amazon, they're on Barnes & Noble, they're, um, you know, they are directly through my publisher site. You can even find them on the Target website. Like, you can you can get them anywhere. So. And we will also post links to your uh, books on our website once we release your episode. Great. Um, in the end, if you were to describe America... In sure. a word, sentence, and you're a writer. I'm sure you'll do a great sure. job of it. How would you do it? Um, uh, possibilities. Hmm. Possibilities. I still believe that. I, we, even though, like, you know, India is going through uh, political turmoil and America is going through the same kind of political turmoil, there's still possibilities for positive change and positive growth and for uh, for dreams to come true. So I would say, you know, my parents um, and my grandparents had their possibilities realized and their dreams realized. And, um, you know, hopefully that I can pass that on to my kids as well. Thank you so much, Nisha. This was wonderful. Best Thanks. of luck. And so I can't much. wait to read the rest of your book, this one, and then your new book, which is coming out in, you said, 2021, right? So the, yeah, so the next young adult book um, is coming out in 2021. Yeah, that's and... not for me, but... <laughs> 
And then like, maybe I'd wait for another adult novel to come out. The adult novel is coming out in February of 2020. The second, oh. yeah. So that's sooner. Yep. So yeah. So that's the one for me. So I will absolutely <laughs> read that. Thank you so much, thank and you. thank you to our listeners. Our website is www.immigrantlypod.com. Um, come back next week when we have another inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 